Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 223 of the Fun with Cars Motorsport Miscellany, a brief rundown of the motorsports we care about. I'm Robin Warner. And I'm Jim Lau. Wait. <laughs> How did you already get up to episode 223? Wait, 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 hold on. Wait, wait hold on. Last I knew, it was like 200. Am I dreaming right now? Someone pinch me. Is that is that the Jim Lau? The one and only. You pulled me out of retirement. I did, and this is kind of amazing. I am, I am, I'm speechless, which is ironic since it's a podcast. I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to work on that quickly. In the meantime, tell me why you're here. All kinds of cool stuff going on lately. We're not actually here to talk about Formula One and only sort of cursorily about motorsport uh, in as much as just kind of some cool stuff we've been up to lately and uh, various things that are automotive and, uh, and you know, interesting. So, um over the summer, uh, you know, we've had I've had a busy year, uh, very, very much with work stuff and with family stuff and everything. But uh, more recently, in October, I was called out to uh, Las Vegas to get hired for a uh, top speed uh, record attempt to attempt a number of different records. Not exactly by Koenigsegg, but for the Koenigsegg Aguirre RS hypercar, I guess is the best word for it, to uh, go as fast as they can on a public road and see what they can do. And uh, that turned out to be a pretty cool thing. And some of our readers and Facebook page followers may have heard about this already and seen. Uh, some of the stuff we put together about it, but uh, that was kind of a big deal um, in that the uh, the car itself, uh, using the equipment that I provided to the car uh, and, you know, that I supported, uh, was able to set, I think it was five different records, but uh, the most important one, in my view, is the uh, top speed by a production car uh, with an average of 277.9 miles an hour in two directions on a uh, on a closed course, uh, but a public road. So that was pretty cool to be a part of, and it's something that we want to talk about, uh, but Back to the connection with you is that uh, I wrote a little, you know, little couple paragraphs about it and whatever. And uh, through knowing a guy that works at Auto Week um, in the form of you, uh, we were able to get that published on the website. So that was pretty exciting for me to uh, have a little uh, couple words out in virtual print for me. Yeah, it's ironic, but the the everything we're going to be talking about today, or at least the vast majority of it, is going to be AutoWeek.com articles. Ironically enough, that's Jim and myself, and ironically enough, I was actually involved in all of them in some capacity, and it's a great opportunity for Jim and I to reconnect in a public sense with the podcast and to allow Jim to talk about being a part of setting a record, being the official timekeeper for the top speed record of a production car, and then we're also going to talk about a couple of opportunities I've had recently that were pretty darn special. And just like Jim mentioned, the articles themselves that we're talking about have been put up on the Facebook uh, Facebook page. So Fun With Cars uh, Facebook page has links to these articles that we're about to talk about. But come on, there's no substitution for the real thing. And that sweet, sweet baritone voice, that is Jim Lau. I don't know if it really counts as baritone, but yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Well, I don't think sweet, sweet tenor voice has the same ring to it. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't even know what uh, what scale my voice falls into. But either way, um, it's kind of funny because it's, it's the confluence of both of our day jobs, right? And so for if somehow you've gotten this far and don't realize that Robin's day job is that he works at AutoWeek.com uh, or AutoWeek, the, the publication, both print and uh, digital for the magazine. Um, and my day job is as technical director for North America of Race Logic, who makes the V-Box line of products. Um, I've been doing that for 12 and a half years now, so uh, that's been a long-term uh, deal for me. But um, that's, it's, you know, I've, we've been related in terms of, you know, the uh, various publications and engineering companies and, and automakers that you've worked for have used my products to greater and lesser degrees over the years. And uh, I got my start in this whole field uh, from being your friend and roommate and whatever way back in the day and helping out with car and driver testing when you were working there. And, uh, and that was how I had my ex- first exposure to V-Box way back in the early 2000s. And, and it kind of went from there. So it is kind of funny, uh, you know, sort of 15 years later to uh, that we're here we are talking about some cool stuff that you and I have done both, you know, through the day job, but through our side project, which has also been 10 plus years going now uh, through the uh, Fun With Cars podcast and on episode 220 whatever, which is kind of exciting. 223 and yeah it's it's interesting because my day job from the beginning of this podcast which is now over 10 years old has changed 
several times. I mean, when we first started Formula One, et cetera, in 2006, I was at Car and Driver. Then I was at TRW. Then I was at Ford, contracted. And then I was at Roan Track. And then I was at Hyundai. And now I'm at Auto Week. And that entire time, you've been at Race Logic. Now, you've actually, I guess, technically switched jobs um, once, maybe twice, just because of the restructuring of the company you work for. But it's always been the same core group of people that you've worked with and uh, ultimately uh, the same people in England that you've worked for. And the other thing that I think is interesting, since we're bringing up weird things, is that you and I are in the same building, <laughs> but we're not in the same room. And this is for uh, podcast production quality's sake. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely a, you know, a bit of a stickler, I guess we could say, about trying to make things sound better than uh, they otherwise would. And uh, so as much as it would be great to be across the table from you, it's actually a lot harder to do the good audio quality that way and some of the editing stuff that we want to be able to do. So uh, it, it is funny that. So uh, the, the best part about this is we've got a video call going, and I haven't been able to see you for like 10 minutes because it says poor connection, and then the video will resume when the connection improves, but we're on the same Wi-Fi in the same house. So somehow that's already gone pear-shaped. No more sideshow. Tell me about this Koenigsegg. Tell me what it was like. You, uh, you wrote, and I helped... Uh, pare it down a little bit and turn it into an article. You told me about uh, being behind the scenes of a record-breaking run, and you were the official timekeeper, and you spent time with uh, Christian Koenigsegg himself, and uh, you spent time with the test driver slash engineer, uh, Nicholas Lelija, or I don't know, probably some other completely different way to pronounce it. Which is Lelia, but yeah. Yeah, there you go. And and you were there. So tell me, like, what that experience is like, what the people were like. Oh, and actually we should start with kind of, in a way, the most obvious thing. You must have also spent time with the owner of the car because this was not a development car or a Koenigsegg-owned car. This was a private owner and a private owner's club that put this whole thing together in the first place. Yeah, so uh, it was actually uh, one of the owners that got in touch with me. Not the guy who owned the record-setting car, but who uh, has another Koenigsegg. And uh, they you know, they set up a small company just for the purposes of putting on this test uh, out in the desert. This was outside of Las Vegas, Nevada, in between Vegas and Pahrump, um, and where there is a seven-plus-mile stretch of perfectly straight highway. Um, it's not flat there. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, it is a, a nice straight section. But uh, yeah, it was uh, he representing this company that got in touch with me saying, hey, we have the, you know, we want to set a record with a really fast car and we've got this closed course and it's a whole thing. Uh, and, you know, we know that RaceLogic is one of the industry standards for speed measurement and especially for high speed uh, validation and things like that. So we want you to be a part of it. And then we were, of course, saying, hey, we're happy to happy to be a part of that. And it was great. So it was not the, you know, Koenigsegg company that got in touch, but it was this one owner. And uh, and as is the way with a lot of these things, um, I'm not going to use a lot of the names there um, because it is some of these. These are all you know pretty high net worth individuals, and uh, not everyone is super public about what they're doing and and you know how they're spending their money or whatever. And I'll let the the, the players involved share whatever they want uh, in their own ways. But um, it was yes, yeah, so it was one owner that got in touch with me, and uh, it was it was it was great. So we, I showed up at at uh, Spring Mountain Raceway, which is outside that's in Pahrump, again outside of Las Vegas, and. Um, they did. They had a whole garage there, and I think probably seven Koenigsegg vehicles there, which is you know it's a it's a special thing to see one Koenigsegg in any in any spot, um, and uh, and to see sort of you know I think a handful of them, um, a, a bunch of these new uh, Agera RSs, um, but then also a couple of older models, a CC8 I think or CCX, and I'm, I'm not actually a Koenigsegg expert. I've learned a lot more about them as part of this experience, but um, it was really cool to see that. And and then of course during the setup, there's a couple of guys from Koenigsegg there, but it was a team. I think it was four or maybe five of them it was like the the engineer um the the main kind of technician guy which was in, in technician and this is not um you know with a wrench and a, and a greasy rag this is a guy you know with his laptop and connecting into the car um the driver who's also an engineer nick lilia um there's a pr guy um and that uh, was there as kind of you know taking photos and, and kind of you know managing what are we allowed to talk about and all this kind of stuff and then christian von koenigsegg himself who um of course, is an engineer in his own way, but runs the company and it's his whole operation and is certainly also kind of a PR guy in his own way. Um, but it was it was really cool to see. Uh, you know, so they're, they're working on cars and there's other other Koenigsegg owners there and uh, they're, you know, getting little updates done on their own cars and answering questions and stuff like that just because, you know, it's a, it's a good opportunity for them to uh, 
you know, have an audience with a company that makes a super sub special car that some of these guys have. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we said, they said, yep, this is a car we're going to use. So I, I was just, I said about installing my equipment on it. And, uh, so I actually installed two different V boxes on there and, you know, that's, that's my, you know, that's another day in the life for me is, uh, installing speed measurement equipment onto a vehicle. That's a lot of what I do in my normal day job is, uh, helping people who are using our products and, uh, helping recommend which products to use and all that kind of stuff. So, um, this, this is where I get to be, you know, more like one of my customers where I'm just trying to get a job done. And that job is to measure exactly how fast this thing goes and, uh, and make sure that I'm doing so accurately and repeatedly. So, um, yeah, I had two separate V boxes in there. One of them with video. Um, the other one actually connected into the vehicle. So I have um, engine RPM and uh, some uh, tire pressures and uh, with uh, current gear and those kind of things. Just so I have some some interesting data to look at um, and and help if there's any question or any problem with the car. Um, they may look at my data and say, "Hey, what was going on here? Why was the car doing this or that?" Um, but as it happened, the setup went smoothly. We woke up super early in the morning uh, because of uh, just to, to get out there and and you know the, the section of the road closed down and. Uh, they were able to uh, to make these passes, and at the first, you know, we had a whole briefing meeting, and there's a, there's survey drawings of the road and exactly what the road profile is and where we should set up and where you know where they should go for the high speed and where they should back off and, and all these kind of things. And it was all very technical and very involved. And uh, originally, they were going to transport the car, going to load it up on a uh, on a semi truck to take it out to the to the section of road to use, so that they didn't get you know they didn't dirty up the tires, you know, because when you're going anything anything above 200 miles an hour, um, you know, any little tiny problem becomes a very big problem very easily and very quickly so uh they were wanted to be very very careful about all this uh, but in the end they kind of looked at the road surface and, and everything and said oh yeah we'll just drive the car out there it's it's no big deal so it was you know from this garage and uh at spring mountain raceway they ended up just driving the car out to the uh you know to the to the test test road which is probably about a 10 mile drive or something and uh and then you know there's a whole crowd of people around there because uh part of the, this kind of event it's sort of a lifestyle thing for the uh all these koenigsegg owners and and maybe um uh, aspiring Koenigsegg owners and, and the various, you know, people connected to these, uh, these orbits. So, um, there's, you know, I think a VIP area that probably had more, more people in it than the non VIP section, uh, of just people that are there to kind of hang out and be a part of it. And, you know, everybody that knows a guy and the whole families of the people involved and all this kind of stuff. Um, there was, there were two helicopters going to fly, uh, for, for photography and all that. And I think one or two drones going to, to really capture all this. So, um, that's actually still in, in the works is the the really nicely well-produced, uh, video of the event, uh, is still something that's for coming from probably Koenigsegg directly um, that uh, you know, we'll probably link to that when that comes out because that should be really cool uh, as, a, as a proper production but um they uh, basically, yeah, just uh, after driving the car out from the uh, from the garage and just driving it on the highway like a normal car, um, went and uh, you know put helmets on and strapped in and all that and uh, and just said, oh, let's do this little test pass and you know they said, you know, we're not really going to push it that hard and the first run was like 220 miles an hour you know this exceeding the speed that so many cars are able to do um and for this was just kind of like yeah yeah we'll just you know try it out see if it works and uh they go like you know over 220 um and then they come back and there's a bunch of, uh, you know, we have to, uh, all these safety checks about, okay, we need to check the road. We need to do the, you know, f- uh, there's police uh, escorts at both ends and, you know, all these radios and all this. So, you know, every little, every little step of the way took kind of forever. Um, but the good news is uh, there were really no problems with the car. They just, uh, they did one run as uh, as the proper, like everything's closed down. Everything's, everybody's all, you know, radios are going, the fire crew's ready, the ambulance crew's ready. They had a whole briefing on how to, how to extricate the driver from the car if it, if they needed to, and if they, if the car's flipped over, you know, where's the best way to cut into the chassis to, to get the driver out. So it was all very kind of somber and serious and scary for a little bit. Uh, but when they, when, you know, it really kind of got into it, um, it, uh, it all, it came out really well. Um, so yeah, they did their first run, um, and, you know, came back and it was, I think 200 and, uh, what was it? 268 or something like that. Actually, don't, I don't have that number in front of me, but, uh, they did the, the first run. And said, okay, yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, you know, we, we hit our number. Um, you know, that was that that already you know beats uh, uh, a lot of other vehicles that are out there. But you know, that wasn't that wasn't all the way hundred uh, percent. You know, really pushing super hard. So let's go do another one in that direction, and then we'll come back and do it the other direction. So uh, on run two is where they hit the actual overall outright top speed, which was two eighty four point six, which is just a crazy number if you think about it uh, i don't think you have to think about it it, it is a crazy number yeah I, we could say that pretty matter-of-factly for a car's capability especially considering that there were a lot of safety measures put in but we're still talking about a public two-lane road not completely flat that this was run on so yeah pretty incredible on a lot of levels and you know i think about tire engineers and i think about the heat that's going on and i think about all the things that 
could go wrong really badly if anything went wrong. And that was quite remarkable that it all worked out the way it did. And it showed Christian von Koenigsegg's confidence in the product. It showed, uh, uh, what's his name again? Lilia. Yeah. Uh, his confidence in, in the car as an engineer. And it does, I have to say, also show that Christian von Koenigsegg is got some serious PR in him if he's working on a nice production movie slash video of the event. And I do want to point out before we get too far into this that there is a video and it is on YouTube and it's got over 2 million views now. And that video was put together by one Jim Lau and it is V-Box footage. Yeah, so that that's that what came uh, what came out of the video V box that I had in the vehicle. Actually, I think the the one was was I think number twenty on the top trending videos on YouTube for a little bit, just when it first came out and was getting all these views. And I think last I saw it was over five million views or something. So it's kind of cool to uh, it's not like it's a video well, of me or anything. Five but, million is over two million, Jim. Yeah, well, there you go. Oh. Um, that uh, to just you know have something that I've worked on be uh, kind of go that go that big was uh, was pretty exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, talking about the tire engineers, actually, that's an interesting bit. So the the tires, these are just the normal road legal tires. They're, I think, Michelin Pilot Sport Cup 3 tires. And there were Michelin engineers on hand to check everything over and make recommendations and all that. And the original recommendation that they gave was we should change tires after every run because they had done some modeling. And of course, Michelin uh, being, you know, one of the premier tire suppliers in the world, uh, they supply all kinds of race teams and high-end cars. And of course, the, you know, Bugatti, uh, Chiron, and the Veyrons and all these kind of things are all Michelin. So at the very high end, Michelin has, you know, a, a rare amount of experience uh, with super high speed uh, testing and all that. And they had run some models based on what the actual aerodynamic load and the speed and everything of the vehicle uh, and, and, you know, what the tire would be doing. Uh, and they sort of, and, and basically they're modeling how much heat gets into the tire. And once it gets the, once the inside, the carcass of the tire gets to a certain level of heat, then all of a sudden it's sort of not maybe all of a sudden, but uh, it just it loses its strength. And, uh, and then they don't want to run it anymore after that. And they want to cycle it too many times. Um, but after the first run, because it's not just that this car has a really, to- really high top speed and lots of power, but it gets there so quickly that um, one of the questions that Michelin guys want to know after the first run where they went 272 was, um, what is, uh, you know, how, how long was the vehicle over 250 miles an hour? Because and under that was sort of, oh, that's fine. You know, we've, we've, we've got all kinds of modeling. We know how the tire behaves under there, but it's over that speed uh, is, is how long basically was the vehicle applying so much load into this tire that it was, uh, you know, potentially starting to not cause damage, but just, you know, really kind of start to wear the tire. And uh, it was only about 15 seconds. It was so quick to get up to speed. And then he backed off and got back down the speed. And they kind of, so that after a visual inspection of the tire, of course, they're checking pressures and all that. Um, they've got uh, a multi-element temperature sensor. So they've got sort of 16 points across the uh, across each tire. They can look at the temperature inside to outside and what the difference is and all that. Um, the Michelin guy said, nope, these tires are great. You can do another run. And they kept doing that after, the, so there was a 284 run um, and then the, and then in the other direction. Um where I went 271.2 in the, in the opposite direction. Um, and and even after that, the Michelin engineer said, no, actually, this is still fine. You can go do more runs if you want. So that car is really easy on its tires. And they were being super careful at the outset and having Michelin engineers there and checking stuff. What was Michelin checking? Were they just checking tire temperatures across the tire? Were they checking what what metrics were Michelin checking? It was, yeah, so tire temp, uh, absolute temperature, uh, delta temp between inside and outside edges to see if, you know, based on the camber, how much is it, uh, how much more is it getting, you know, how much hotter is it getting in the inside versus the outside, um, you know, in front to rear and all that, just to try to understand the balance of is all the load of this car going towards the front or the rear or whatever. Um, and then, of course, pressures and then visual inspection of the tire as well, just to see if, you know, everything looked okay on it. And the tires still look pretty much new after, you know, after these runs. It was really incredible. Yeah. Wow. It, it's, uh, that's a big thing. Like, you know, we hear most of these kind of reports when we're talking about the Bugatti versus the Veyron, then the Chiron. And then, uh, you know, for Koenigsegg to go out there and just have something more. I, you know, there's, I have to say, I have two minds of this. It is incredibly impressive what uh, the Koenigsegg can do. But at the same time, the Bugatti does go through more development and rigor. The Koenigsegg is a production car built by a very specialty uh, small manufacturer supplier. The Bugatti, that's a Volkswagen and goes through, you know, pretty rigorous tests. So uh, I, I still give the Bugatti a lot of credit without trying to take away credit from the Koenigsegg. I think that the Bugatti is still quite 
impressive. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that they're both impressive vehicles. Um, so I, the Chiron, I don't think, has set an official top speed yet, um, and at least not that I know of. I know they did a 0 to 400k to 0, and then this Koenigsegg test, we did that as well after all the high-speed runs and beat their run by about 9 seconds. So that was a, a pretty big pretty big difference. Um, someone I did see on Instagram uh, edited the two videos together because uh, they did like the top of the, you know the top of the screen is the Sharon and the bottom of the screen is the is the Koenigsegg and it's pretty wild when you see it like that because it's something like thirty three seconds versus uh, forty two um, where you know when the one car is sitting there stopped for nine seconds while the while the Sharon is I think I think the Koenigsegg come to a stop comes to a stop before the Sharon starts braking which is really pretty incredible um, and this is you know four hundred kilometers an hour just just under two hundred fifty miles an hour um, but uh, Bugatti has not yet, if they've published a number, I don't know if it's official or, you know, we, we haven't done a V-Box test with the Chiron. So that that it's possible, I guess, that that car comes out and they can set a higher number, but I think that's that's pretty unlikely. Um, and then, of course, this whole test was only a day or two after the SEMA show in Las Vegas where Hennessy Performance Engineering uh, unveiled their Venom F5 car, which, um, and this is a big claim, but of course they claim uh, we'll be able to, to go in excess of 300 miles an hour. And uh, so that was the other big question is you know, on the internet, on the comment section on YouTube and all the forums and whatever is, uh, hey, yeah, you know, so that the average speed on, on this one was just, you know, 277.9. Um, they said, oh, yeah, so that's, you know, uh, what, 278, that's great and all, but this Hennessy car is going to go 300. And uh, obviously that's, you know, saying you can go 300 is a very different thing than actually going 300 miles an hour. Um, but that's that's the other sort of, the other player in this space. And, uh, you know, those, uh, as, as we may have talked about back in the day, um, I was do, I did the, uh, speed verification on the Hennessy runs as well. So those are V box numbers and I know exactly what the, you know, what, what, the, what went on with those. Cause some of those were me personally, some of those were my colleagues, but, uh, I w- I've been involved in that kind of stuff before. And, and, you know, we have good friends over there at Hennessy. So, um, you know, that's, it'll be interesting to see when the Venom F5 comes together, if they can, in fact, come back and beat this 278 number, uh, or if, you know, Bugatti or they, you know, the, the Chiron is one thing, but, you know, they, the typical setup, right, is to come out with a super sport model with even more horsepower and, and different aerodynamics and who knows what. So, you know, none of these, none of these records are going to stand forever, uh, but it is pretty wild just to, uh, to kind of be a part of this and, and see how far, how far ahead uh, this car was from the previous records. Um, and, and just for, as an example, it was, um, uh, uh, 274, I think was the previous or 272. I forget the, the Hennessy record before this. So, you know, we're not, we're not shaving off, you know, tenths of a mile an hour here. This is, these are pretty big chunks that, uh, this Koenigsegg has done. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. And the other thing I'll mention is that this car is a pure, uh, gasoline car. There's uh, we're running on ethanol actually for this, uh, for this test. I think it was all E85, but, um, this is not a hybrid. This, there was no electrification as part of this. It's a just nice, uh, um, you know, twin turbo v8 powertrain um and making i think the 1600 horsepower or thereabouts 1538 something like that um so just crazy horsepower um and rear wheel drive so this is not a trick you know oh it's hybrid and these motors kick in and it's all wheel drive for this and that whatever this is like in some ways a simple car obviously not really a simple car but in terms of the overall sort of philosophy of it um it's uh it's, it's kind of cool and then and so the the question is uh you know the next car to beat this will that be something with an electric powertrain uh or some kind of hybrid thing because of course in the, a lot of the other hypercars now um it is all about electrification and uh some of these electric all-wheel drive and some you know more fancy features and not just about like hey let's stuff a V8 in there and make tons of horsepower out of it and go yeah it's absolutely true and you're missing actually another potential player in this and that's Elon Musk with Tesla because getting to that electrification is exactly right. And they're making more and more claims about what they can do with battery powers and the peak horsepower they can get in the true top speeds that the Teslas will be able to achieve in the not too distant future. Now there's a difference between an electric motor and a gasoline motor, which is typically electric powered cars don't have gears. They just let the electric motor spin up, but as an electric motor spins up, it gets to the higher revs, it loses efficiency, loses power. And are we going to get to a point where Tesla or some other manufacturer starts putting gears in the electric motor so that they can also really start reaching these really big top speeds and not have an electric motor that needs to spin at 50,000 RPM or something nuts? Yeah, in the coverage of the new Tesla Roadster, um, they all they've said is over 250 miles per hour as a top speed. So um, it's you know that's that's a pretty you know big difference from sort of this two 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 seventy eight. Uh, but as you say, you know Elon Musk uh, does love love to show off when the opportunity presents itself. So it wouldn't be 
Uh, I wouldn't be super surprised if they did, even if it was just some special version or a one-off or whatever, to take this car and put something of a gearbox in it to uh, to do that. Um, because certainly accelerating off the line, these all-wheel drive, dual-motor electric cars are nearly impossible to beat. I mean, the only thing that comes close really are these you know, super lightweight rally cars or something, or rally cross cars uh, with all-wheel drive and you know 600 horsepower and all kinds of torque and whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Tesla's already sort of proven that um, with just even the big heavy sedans and SUVs, but you know, a Roadster certainly with the uh, kind of battery capacity and, and quick discharge that they can do. I'm sure the zero to 60 is going to be, you know, untouchable on this electric car, but uh, you know, the top speed is a different game where that's aerodynamics and that's outright power and sustained power and that's not necessarily what the electric motors are good at you know not that they can't get there and, and certainly this is just for, you know right now talking and of course in the future uh some of this may change but um it is uh you know they're not yet you know tesla hasn't claimed oh this thing's gonna go 300 and or anything like that you know they're they're got more re- reasonable performance goals uh, at least for the time being yeah all true so let's talk a little bit more about uh the men that were involved and Christian von Koenigsegg, of course, is the obvious person we talk about, but I want to talk about uh, Mr. Nick Lelia first, and I probably said it wrong again, because it was in the article, and I love this, and so I made it the sub-headline, and someone asked uh, Nick after he made some of these runs, hey, would you like to go even faster now? And he replied, no, fun is not a straight line, which is so Yoda. I just love that. And I want to know... Give me a little bit more. Tell me a little bit more about this guy. You mentioned that he was kind of Kimi Raikkonen-esque in the way he was kind of mild-mannered about everything. But what was he like? Was he a nice guy? Was he personable? Was he quiet to himself, kind of engineer-y? What, what was he like? Yeah, I mean, super nice guy. And, uh, you know, he's a Swedish engineer. So uh, in terms of the, you know, the general stereotypes about the disposition and all that, is this not just kind of, you know, run his mouth about, you know, stuff he doesn't know about or whatever, but a lot, you know, like most engineers is going to want to sort of, you know, consider the, consider the the facts and evidence and make a, you know, before he sort of says, you know, whether he thinks something is a good idea or not and sort of think about it. Um, and then whether it's some of the Swedish disposition or whatever is, is, uh, to be, you know, a bit more, maybe a bit more reserved and not such a flamboyant, crazy American or something, but, um, but yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're having lunch after this whole thing. And, uh, and I guess to, to, you know, uh, as, as we run out the little article story, um, you know, after these runs, um, the, the owner of the car actually got back in after, after Nick was driving and drove it back and we had lunch. So it wasn't even after the whole runs, it wasn't, you know, taken away to be checked over and rebuilt and whatever. It was like, oh yeah, it's fine. Let's go, go, go take it back to the track and let's go have lunch. So it was at that, at that sit down lunch when, you know, people are kind of talking to him and, and it's funny cause the guy that was asking uh, the driver the questions was kind of egging him on a little bit of, oh yeah. So, you know, this, this is, you set this new record. This is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. And now, uh, so man, I bet you can't wait to get out there and do this again. Right. And he's like, eh, no. <laughs> like that, this was okay uh but you know that's what it, you know and obviously um maybe not obviously but uh I, my thinking is it's just you know english not being his first language he just sort of means yeah going in a straight line is really not that exciting um and uh and of course you know the way he happened to phrase it yeah as you as you really uh you know latched onto is uh sounds a bit yoda-esque and whatever and uh kind of interestingly foreign but yeah he was he he was not the one of these sort of i want to go set this record i want to beat the record i can't wait to get out you know back out of there again he's kind of like yeah no that's okay and it's that's neat to have this record i'm i'm glad that you know glad that this worked um he's like i'm just glad there's no problem with the car which is such an understatement because a problem with the car at 280 miles an hour could you know very likely be a, a serious injury or fatality or who knows what so just for him to go oh yeah the car was good you know it's like yeah that's fine yeah and let's get into that a little bit you said the road was straight but it was not totally flat so were was it basically you're going downhill one way uphill the next or were there some waves in in the road where you're going up and down both ways there were little waves in the road, but mostly it was uphill one way and downhill the other, which is why the numbers are so different. I mean, and just to, to reiterate, run two. Um, so it wasn't a wind thing as much. No, um, it was, you know, 284 in one direction and 271 in another. So a 13 mile an hour difference, um, which is a pretty big, uh, you know, pretty big difference. Um and that was, you know, and I guess the wind was, there wasn't too much wind. If there was a lot of side wind or whatever, they, they wouldn't have, you know, wanted to run or allowed us to run. But, uh, uh, you know, the wind, I don't think was, was as much of a factor, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, there was some, some hill to it, um, uh, but it was perfectly straight. I mean, I have the, uh, the, you know, the, the data, of course, with you know, part of my logger, it all uses GPS. So part of what I get out of it is a nice trace of the, uh, of the path. And if you look at it on a, uh, on a plot, it looks really boring because it's just a straight line. Um, and so I agree with Nick that, uh, it's not fun, but looking at the speed part of it, then yeah, it is actually quite exciting. Um, and there's, uh, a couple of interesting bits 
in the data, um, I mean, on the on the top speed run, he shifts from sixth to seventh gear at 228 miles an hour. So it's like he's already going 228, which exceeds what so many vehicles in the world can do. And then, oh, there's another gear. And a lot of people commented that in the video as well. They're kind of going, he doesn't even really get on the power that hard. Um, he's nowhere near red line in any of the gears until he gets up to fifth and sixth and up, you know, up in seventh, which is top gear in this. Um, that's where he's really pushing hard against the wind and, the, and it's, you know, kind of much slows down the acceleration. But um, he's short shifting. He's taking his time, you know, just kind of tootling down the road um, up until, let's see, about eh, 150 miles an hour, you know, which, again, for so many cars is, you know, is that's the top, you know, that they can never hope to achieve. And he's just kind of uh, dawdling around until he's like, okay, I might as well get my foot into it. So the video watching it, it's funny. Uh, it doesn't, it's not that exciting to watch the first, you know, 45 seconds or whatever of it. Cause it's just, uh, he's just driving and it's like, burn, burn, he's going, it's not nothing too exciting. And then he really kind of puts the hammer down and, uh, and then, and then, you know, you, you think it's kind of, oh man, he's maxing out. And then, nope, there's seventh gear. There's a whole other gear. And then the car accelerates as hard as it has the whole rest of the time and just carries on to this ludicrous speed. So it's uh it's it's pretty cool um as uh you know that it that there are these gears to it and there is this engine sound and all that it's not just a a robotic thing and that was one of my uh complaints actually about the Veyron uh when we've done speed shootouts and stuff for magazines and for different things is um I remember doing one in uh, probably 2006 or 7 with uh twin turbo viper and that was the Hennessy thing at the time you know before he had his own uh you know supercars and whatever um uh, that he makes um uh, or the you know lotus based things um but uh, with a twin turbo Viper, that thing taking off the line, it's rear wheel drive. There was no uh, launch control or whatever, traction control probably even on it. And it was it was all kinds of drama and it was wheel spin and the driver's really fighting it and really kind of trying to make it work. And it's a manual transmission. He's dropping the clutch pedal and doing this whole thing. And it was really kind of dramatic and all that. And then the Veyron, first of all, sounds weird because it's a W16 with four turbos so that, you know, it's, it's just kind of the exhaust note isn't isn't one of these sort of real sexy notes. And uh, And it's all wheel drive. And, you know, there is, you know, some, some launch control and stability and whatever to it. So it just kind of goes there and just, and just takes off. And there's not many, there's not much drama to it. It doesn't, there's no wheel spin, there's no slip. So it is, you know, more efficient. Um, but uh, that is definitely uh, sort of a difference. And so this Koenigsegg was, was more But like, I thought you'd be all about that. You love efficiency. That's your thing. I do love efficiency. Well, see, I'd, I'd, I'd go for the Tesla Roadster and just do the whole thing electric, but that's, that's my deal. But yeah, so the Koenigsegg was, was a nice mix of both in that, um, you know, he did, it wasn't some fighting with this crazy beast of a thing you're trying to tame, um, but also, but it was more sort of, there's more fun to it and more humanity to it because it was only rear-wheel drive and uh, and there's no clutch pedal in this. That is a, you know, a hydraulically actuated transmission. Um, so it's just, you know, paddle shifters and whatever, but um, it was, you know, anyway, it's just a, a cool thing to uh, to see. And it was only on the zero to 400k to zeros that he actually launched the car hard because otherwise it was, um, you know, like we said, he could take his time getting up to speed. Oh, and one thing I wanted to mention um, about the about this car. So the owner was there, um, and uh, he had not driven his car until after it set these runs. So this is a brand new Koenigsegg from the factory. They built it, um, and you know he, he he optioned it up how they want. And in this kind of hypercar market, uh, that's kind of the whole thing. You know, nothing is just sort of sitting there on the lot. It's you know what what kind of it's not even what interior do you want, but it's you know which of the exact uh, of these various different kinds of materials do you want. What color stitching do you want? How what style of stitching? What kind of you know everything is is you know made to order and super custom and how you want the stripes and what colors you want and what kind of finishes and all this kind of stuff is all done. So yeah, that's a similar process you went through with your uh, Fusion Electric, right? Yeah, by by buying it used, you mean you mean uh, bespoke? Yeah. Um, so uh, so he's he's seen this car and and people are talking. Oh, is, you know, are you nervous about having them drive your car for this thing? Or you know, why did you why did you agree to do this? And it's like. You know, and and I agree with him. He's like, I'd be crazy not to. What kind of, a, you know, this is like the coolest opportunity. So he actually hadn't driven his car. Like, you know, uh, it was all the, the, you know, whatever testing and stuff that happened at the factory. And then this, you know, Nick Lelia doing the doing the drives here for the super high speed stuff. And so the first time he got behind the wheel of his own car was after, you know, Christian von Koenigsegg and he and Nick Lilia signed the engine cover with a, you know, 277.9 miles per hour and the date and the whatever. And then it's like, basically you know christian von koenigsegg hands him the keys like hey here's your new car you know thanks for buying it and off you go so uh, i don't know man i'd i'd want a discount that was not following the proper break-in procedure yeah <laughs> i i that that's uh he's he's gonna want to talk to the uh service manager about that like, what's the history on this car well we got it all on video and it was trending on youtube so excuse me excuse me uh it says don't floor it for the first 500 miles um what 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 would you say happened here um so one other question I really had was, have you put in your application to Stalker Radar yet, or are you are you in that process, the interview? Because clearly, that's a superior, 
a company to work for. I mean, they found a faster top speed than your little GPS things could do. So why, I mean, I don't even know why we're talking about 277 this. They found they found the Koenigsegg to go 291 miles an hour. That's seven miles an hour better than what you guys could say, or six and a half. Well, yeah, so that was the one controversy of the whole thing was they, they had, you know, I was out there as the main timekeeping and all that, or I guess it wasn't the timing so much as the actual speed measurement, um, which is, uh, you know, what, what the V-Box provides. Um, but then, yeah, they had a representative from Stalker Radar there as well. And, you know, I want to be careful here because I'm not going to you know speak ill of uh, just, you know, the professionals trying to do their job and whatever. But um, it was actually after that first test run. So not the one where I say he went 284, but after the first run where I say he went, I think it was 272, if, if memory serves. Um, after that very first run, I came back, you know, they came back and I said, oh, you know, I looked at the numbers. Okay, yeah, 272 point, I think 272.2 sounds sounds right to me. Um, and uh, so everyone's kind of talking, oh, wow, 272, wow, that's amazing, because that was really close to the Hennessy number, you know, the 274 that they were looking for. So they're like, okay, we're not there yet, but, you know, we, we I did back off and it wasn't the super, you know, I wasn't pushing super hard and all that. So that, that all kind of made sense and it lined up with other numbers. And then the uh, the stalker radar guy comes, you know, shows up and says, oh, it was 291. And everyone just kind of loses their mind because that would be, uh, you know, a, a huge upset and whatever you know that that's that exceeds the record by by even more um but you know then we kind of looked at the the other system so i actually have you know as i mentioned i have two separate v boxes on the car and they both agree with that um the car has its own speedometer uh, which you know we don't trust uh over the v box but it was it was right in line with what we'd expect it was you know really close been reading just a little bit uh a little bit higher but but you know only uh they have to do that a little bit for the for the regulations and for you know eu and u.s regulations yeah, well, let me jump in there quickly. It is absolutely illegal for the speed of the car to be faster than what the speedometer says. So it pays the manufacturers, uh, it gives them good service to give themselves a little bit of a buffer, especially if you know tires are overinflated or they've been changed or anything like that, so that you cannot be accused of having a speedometer that is telling you slower than you're actually going. Right. Anyway, so we looked at the, the multiple V-boxes. There was another data logger in the car and the car itself, and they were all as expected right in there together. And then this other stalker number that was way high. But, of course, um, that's a number that started spreading around as soon as someone said it. Uh, and this is, you know, there's a whole crowd of people around here because there's all, all manner of people that are, you know, part of this event. And then uh, someone starts tweeting about it, and then I think Jalopnik picked it up, and people start talking about it as like, oh, man, this car went 291. And uh, that, was, that was, you know, it was kind of annoying because... Um, that's not the real number, and it's almost this little bit of a disappointment when you have to come out and say, no, 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 I know you heard 291, but that's not the real number. The real number is 278, but they already had the higher number in mind, so it's a little bit of this letdown, whereas if that number hadn't hadn't kind of leaked out early on, then it would have been, a, a, you know, I think, more of a big splash of, hey, this car went to you know, 277.9 or 278, and uh, hey, that's great. Um, and so afterwards, there was some some question in the kind of reviewing, oh, I, I think you know because of the, the curvature of the, the you know, we're, we're, we're measuring around a corner and you guys are measuring in 3D, so the numbers are different. But no, this is, they, they sort of st- stood by the number, you know, after, after we kind of talked about it a little bit. And um, this may actually show up in the video, I'm not sure. Uh, but there, you know, there was the, the, there was the whole crowd of people around there and the, uh, the organizers of the event and Christian's there and the driver's there and the stalker guy. And he sort of says his piece about, no, I, I'd stake my career on it. You know, I know this is, I know this is accurate and I, we calibrate this thing and blah, blah, blah. And then everyone kind of turns to me like, well, the V-Box guy didn't say that. So, you know, everyone looks at me like, well, what do you say? And I'm just I don't agree with that number. You know, I'm not uh, nothing. I don't know, you know, nothing personal against the guy or the technology of radar or whatever. But I think there's, you know, something going on there that uh, wasn't wasn't quite happening correctly with, you know, the way that a radar gun has to be sort of, you know, calibrated for how far it's not perfectly in front of the car. So it's a little bit off to the side and how much it tries to correct for that. And, you know, any a, a like, you know, a 2% change at these kind of values is... uh you know, it can be a really big difference. So something like, you know, something I think just wasn't quite set up correctly. Um, and then afterwards, because um, because we also have, uh, you know, the RPM data and all that, I can compare these numbers not only for what the speeds are, but also like what the RPM was on the car and all that. So basically we did some math on the uh, on these data files because uh, we our, our files all agree that he went faster on the second run. Um, and uh, and then the, after that, in the second run, the radar guy's numbers agreed with mine. So whatever he was doing in the first place, I think something changed. And then uh, his method was probably more sound for the second and third runs, and the, and the numbers lined up. So we kind of considered it as moot, but uh, they did want to try to get to the bottom of that. Um, so, you know, we looked at the, the numbers and said, yeah, we, you know, we, we can tell by the RPM data that he definitely went faster in the second run compared to the first. And that 
correlates with the multiple V-boxes, the other data loggers, the car, and you know, the, the system in the car, um, and then the radar gun agreed on runs two and three. So I think run one, I don't know exactly what happened, but something, uh, you know, something didn't quite get, get installed right or calibrated correctly, or he maybe misread some configuration or whatever, and, uh, and sort of sent out the sensational number that wasn't actually true. So I don't want to, to take away from the uh, the achievement that was actually that was actually done because it was really special, but it was uh, a, you know kind of a, just something we're looking at when people are all you know we're, we're out there, everyone's out there on their phone you know looking at Twitter and trying to see oh yeah what's going on oh Jalapeng says they went two ninety one and we're like no they didn't go two ninety one so that was uh, a little bit you know of a, just a bit of a pestering uh, kind of thing but um, in the grand scheme of things uh, you know I think that's mostly going to get forgotten and it's uh, it's all about the actual number this you know two seventy seven point nine I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to subtract you know, seven miles an hour from every time that I get pulled over by the police in any capacity for speeding me like, hey, it says you were going 85 and a 70. I'm like, no, sir. I was going 77 and a 70. Clearly, that thing reads seven miles an hour too fast at, at a minimum. And we're going to just go ahead and lob that off. And you'll see that I was less than 10% above the speed limit. And really, that means I was going with the flow of traffic you should get a V-Box. It does raise questions like that, I would say, for sure. And, uh, I mean, I think a lot of, <laughs> you know, uh, police officers using radar in their, in their jobs, a lot of the training and stuff that goes into that is, is so that they can, you know, make sure everything's running correctly and, and do all the offsets and calibration and, and almost, you know, even just looking at the car as it drives by, even if they didn't have a radar gun, uh, their their skills and experience should allow them to, you know, evaluate whether the car was exceeding a safe speed or not. So, uh, yeah, it's actually pretty rare to to fight those things successfully. But it uh, it is it is a good point though that you know radar guns. Well, I guess any any technology, GPS included, is making certain assumptions about the world and the way things are. And uh, and then you know if there's any kind of an offset factor or calibration or things like that, then those need to be accounted for. And um, I will just in the, the last thing on GPS that the, some questions people had about it were. Because there was a hill involved, if you're going up and down the hill, how much does that affect the number? Um, and it does affect it because the typical speed that we report is just in X and Y. Uh, so we recalculated all the numbers to include the uh, the vertical as well. And it's X and Y coordinates, as in the Cartesian coordinates, uh, we should add. As in, yeah, forward and back being X and, and left and right being Y, where up and down is Z. So normally we don't, you know, there's not enough of an up or down to uh, to a test to, to worry about it. Um, so we, we, you know, don't include that. It just adds some noise to our calculation for speed. But in this case, we, um, I, I recalculated the numbers using 3d speed, um, which is of course, um, Pythagorean theorem situation, right? We, uh, we do the, uh, square root of, you know, vertical speed squared plus uh, horizontal speed squared. You'll remember in math, math class, a squared plus B squared equals C squared That's the one. is what we're getting at here. So when you think about it, even if you're going up by, I think the maximum was about five miles an hour or down, depending on which run you're looking at. You know, five miles an hour is a very small leg of the triangle compared to 270-some miles an hour. So it, it changed the speed by less than a tenth of a mile an hour. So, you know, we did the math on that just to sort of make sure everybody agrees on what's going on. And it was, it was you know, literally within a rounding error of what we're looking at. So the 277.9 number, I, I, I do stand by that as the accurate number, whether you count vertical or not. And, uh, and whichever, you know, I don't know that even the Guinness uh, or, or some other kind of sanctioning body has a, a, uh, an assertion on should you count vertical or not, because part of the point of running both directions on the track is whatever you gain by going downhill, you are fighting against while you're going uphill. And same thing with the wind. So it shouldn't really matter one way or the other. But um, either way, the, uh, you know, the number stands and we stand by it. And uh, I think it um, that's that's pretty much been been accepted now. And I don't really know what happened with the radar thing, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been in that situation before, too, where uh, something something's going on that you don't understand and you sort of, you know, make a claim maybe you shouldn't have about, oh, well, actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the number or, you know, that's definitely the number or whatever. And it's like, you've you know, since then, this radar guy is very likely he's looked back at his data and realized, oh, this setting was set for this instead of that. And no, that's that's why and whatever. So uh, without him being here to defend himself, I don't want to, uh, you know, cast aspersions about radar guns. But well, that's why I'm here to cast aspersions. Well, uh, fair enough. There is one more thing I want to talk about, though, because you were talking about doing a little bit of math with the engine RPM. Obviously, you know, the overall gear ratio because it's the final drive ratio with the transmission gearing and the engine speed that gives you a number. And then you multiply all these things. You have the uh, uh, the wheel and tire diameter that should give you if you know the RPM and you know all the gear ratios you should be able to calculate a pretty accurate speed. The only thing that I can think of that would really vary that would be as the tire 
is going faster, everything within the tire expands, and that makes its overall diameter a little bit bigger, which affects um, affects that uh, ov- that final gear, which is the wheel diameter. I mean, point is that's not uh, ratio wise going to be a big big change. I wouldn't think so. You should be able to get relatively accurate of like, well, what's this car capable of in this gear at this engine RPM? Yeah, and certainly Koenigsegg would know that about all the gear ratios and all that. And you know, part of uh, you know my job as installing the V box and everything is the part of the point of that is that we don't have to worry about gear ratios and changes due to temperature and inflation and all the little details that go into that because uh, you know our whole thing is that completely separate from the electronics of the vehicle. Um, we've got an antenna that's moving around on the earth underneath some satellites that are flying overhead, and we're able to very accurately determine its position and speed and heading and change of all of those and do a bunch of other math on top of that. So that's part of the part of the point of the sort of third-party thing is that we're not trusting that any of those other calculations were done correctly. My, I completely agree, but my point is is that that should give you a relatively accurate ballpark so that you can know if 291 is even feasible. It's, you know, it's like, oh, 291. 291 miles an hour. Yeah, this car was spinning at eight 800 RPM over its max of an engine speed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it, it didn't go 291. <laughs> we know that. That It was super cool. Uh, it was great for Jim and I to be able to have a conversation about it. It was even better that uh, we could put it into an article and that uh, Jim had his byline on autoweek.com. Autoweek.com, by the way, is a website with over most recently 11 million page views a month. Not a small website in the automotive spectrum, if I do say so myself. And so it was cool. It was cool to be able to do that. And I thought it was a great article. And I thought Jim gave some really fascinating insights about what it was like to be there with Koenigsegg and, uh, and you know, set an official record. Yeah, and I just uh, you know can't thank you enough for getting getting the uh, you know my couple of sentences, little post, whatever, put together into a proper article and uh, getting that published because that was pretty cool for me as uh, something that I don't normally get to do. And speaking of putting a couple sentences together, I've also done that once or twice for AutoWeek.com. It's a little bit easier for me to do it since I work there. But uh, I had I listen I I I have a great job just in general. I get to do a lot of cool stuff. And generally speaking, I'm very happy to do what I do. However, even for me, uh, (laughs) the story that uh, I published just a few days ago, that was something special to be invited by Mercedes to the south of France to drive their race car, not some track car, not some high and expensive, look at me, I'm fancy uh, car. No, a race car, a car that is not legal on the road, a car that is built for racetrack use. I mean, it was just, it was it was great, fantastic experience. And, Jim, this was kind of true before in some senses, but now I can say in a very real sense that I was a professional race car driver because I drove a race car and I got paid to do it. Nice. Achievement unlocked. Well done, sir. Yeah, man. So uh, and it, it had a lot of interesting parallels because the racetrack that, they set up for us to run this test was Paul Ricard, which is in the south of France. It's near uh, Marseille and, you know, only a couple of hours away from Monaco, actually. And it's going to be where the future French Grand Prix is going to be. Formula One is going back to uh, France and they're going to be running at Paul Ricard. So I, in a sense, kind of got a preview of the Formula One track for 2018. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And Paul Ricard is kind of Sebring-esque in the sense that it's very flat. There's pretty much no elevation change, but there's a lot of interesting corners and there's definitely some spots where you can have some big speed. And there's this uh, big, massive, uh, tightening radius hairpin ultimately. But, you know, in the GT4 car, I was entering it in fourth gear and getting down to third. So you can imagine a Formula One car. It's going to be, do you remember that massive, I think it was turn eight, four apex corner at the Turkish Grand Prix? It's going to be kind of like that where it's a hairpin, but it's big, big speed. So there's interesting parts of the Formula One track. And then also Paul Ricard has history as an F1 track back in the day. 
So I'm sure some people are going to have a lot of memories of that from um, from a while ago too. So I, I'm pretty excited for Formula One to come to that race and have experience of that track. Yeah, so it was uh, uh, opened in 1970, but apparently the French Grand Prix was there in like the early 80s, so 1983, 88, 89, 90. Um, but what I what I know about Paul Ricard is that there's like a million configurations of it. I think there's a lot of testing that happens there. They do run, I think, some touring car races and some uh, endurance stuff there. But um, you know, we haven't had F1 there for a long time, and haven't had even a French Grand Prix, which seems crazy uh, in uh, in a number of years. But um, it's one of these tracks that's got little different turnoffs and kind of you can run a short configuration, a medium configuration, a long configuration. There's chicanes that you can either run or not. So right, and if that? you don't if you don't run the chicanes, the straightaway is two kilometers long so <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what configuration formula one does if they run the full straight that's epic speeds and i have a feeling they won't so was that hard though to see where to follow the track i mean if you've got all these different turnoffs and maybe this section's closed and this section is open and all that i mean i've only done this in racing games but i always find that hard where you sort of that you want to sort of follow this line but it turns out oh actually that's where it's closed i want to go to this racing line over here like was that difficult to get up to speed on the particular configuration they were using for your uh, for your test well, as you can imagine, uh, Mercedes, AMG, and especially the people that were specifically responsible for this particular race car, which the the moment we were done with it, it got packed up and shipped, and that car was headed to the United States to do some racing programs in the United States. So that car was not just for us, and when I say us, I mean journalists. And for that car, there was a lot of tension of, Let's not damage it if we don't have to. So one of the reasons why they picked Paul Ricard in the first place is there's a lot of runoff area. There's a lot of room to go wrong and not bang the car up immediately. This isn't Imola. This isn't uh, a speedway or anything like that. And because it was wet, because it was raining before, you definitely could damage this car if you got it wrong. But generally speaking, you had a lot of wiggle room. And the second part, the second point is with that same fear of not getting things wrong as you can imagine the organizers of this event had a lot of cones up to kind of guide you around and not just hey don't go this way go that way blocking off different uh sections to uh remind you not to take one turn versus another but also they had turning cones apex cones exit cones they had braking cones set they had braking cones and braking signs you know Five, four, three, two, one. In, I'll just say, hundred foot uh, intervals. I don't know if it was actually thirty meters or whatever. And so they did a lot to give you the uh, the direction to follow. And then finally, we also got a couple of laps. We didn't drive at all except for in the race car, but we got a couple of laps riding with one of their pro drivers in a AMG GTR, and he gave us. It's like, okay, turn here, do this, this is a good breaking point, be here, be there, that kind of thing. So we got a couple laps to get an idea of where we're going, and that was right before we got in the car. So there was, it was, there was a lot of reasons to make it easier for us to not make those kinds of mistakes, not go the wrong way. And, uh, you know, as I like to say, we, we avoided everything we could to not French fry when we were supposed to pizza. <laughs> See, I understand that reference. So, you know, as, as co-hosts go. I'm uh, way up there. <laughs> yes, I do still listen to the show. <laughs> this looks really cool. I'm just looking at the pictures here. I've got it in front of me. Um, and you note in the article, it's got a clutch pedal. That's like the weirdest thing. You just use that to get started from a dead stop, right? And then the rest is, is all, you just paddle shift through the through the transmission? Yeah. So it's got no lift shift. Uh, it, it, it It's all computer controlled. So there's... There's there's a momentary uh, cutoff in fuel so that you can shift with it being smooth. Um, you can downshift in the same way. It is sequential, so you have to run through the gears, but you can downshift um, without ever touching the clutch. The only thing that the clutch is there for is to get you moving from a standstill and to keep the engine from stalling if you come back to a standstill. So, yeah, it's bizarre that this AMGT is the one and only one with the clutch pedal. <laughs> and, you know, because you think about different, like, high-level, like, Formula One cars, the clutches are part of the paddles. You know, there's there's clutch paddles behind the shifting paddles and things like that. No, this wasn't the case. And the other part of it that was surprising was that clutch was easy to use and better modulated than a lot of road cars. 
And first gear was not especially tall. So I could get the car moving relatively easy. I mean, that's a pretty common thing you see in race cars, especially more novice people in formula cars or something. They're revving the engines high and stall. Revving the engines high and spinning the tires and stall. Because modulating the clutch is so difficult and tricky and because first gear is so tall and the clutch is so snappy and grabby. But that wasn't the case at all in this car. It was shockingly user-friendly. It was almost disappointing how user-friendly it was because you're like, oh, race car, real manly stuff. And it's like, no, I could have air conditioning on if I wanted. That's awesome. I mean, between that and all the cones, you know, I guess they're just, how hard can it be, right? You just, you know, turn where it's the cone and you hit the brakes where it says to and all that. So, but uh, you know how, you know, any old shoe can just uh, hop back in there and uh, set some laps, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, except that, you know, there was a variation of racing experience amongst uh, the journalists that were there. And there were a couple of journalists that were quite slow. And there was one journalist that spun the car and came to a stop and, you know, looked like a ghost when they got back into the pits. So certainly it can it it helps to have some experience of going around in circles to go around in circles in this car. And neither of those journalists were you, just to be clear, right? Correct. <laughs> it, it's funny. There was a breakdown of um, uh, different journalists from different regions and, you know, the main main areas. There, there weren't many journalists there at all, but the main ones were German, British and uh, a few of us from the U.S. And I think the I think they were most nervous about the U.S. journalists. And this is my own speculation, um, but just the way it was set up and um. The U.S. journalists fared just fine. They had no issues there at all. We all had reasonable experience. It was not the U.S. journalists that had these type of issues. Well, there you go. So yeah, it was it was a it was a unique experience to be able to drive something like that, and you know to just have that day to just be at a racetrack and be surrounded by a crew and a race team and all that kind of stuff. Boy, that just that was. That was the dream I wanted when I was trying to become a driver. That that was the life you imagined. And it was just amazing to kind of experience that for a day. And then, you know, to put that into words and try to explain that to, every, to everyone else reading the article, that's the challenge. So talking about the journalists for a second, how many, like just for example, U.S. journalists were you there? Was this a big group or were this a, a select few? No, there, there, were, there were eight, I think it was. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was, you know, it was less than 10 journalists total and three from the U.S. See, that's super cool, man. That's You've got to be happy about that, that out of all the different, you know, magazines and websites and all the different people that, uh, you know, drive cars and talk about cars and uh, write things about them to, to be part of that, That's uh, that's got to be really, really, really cool. So, um, uh, I'm, you know, I can sort of, I can just tell through the article that you're super excited about it because I've known you forever and know that this is something you've always wanted to do and, uh, and to be able to, to tool around in a car like this, but also to be... Um, you know, appreciated as the, you know, one of a talented few of uh, a very small group uh, must be pretty special. Yeah, no, I, I was very excited <laughs> to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, the I don't want to get into details here, but I will say that the other uh, the other U.S. journalists had more. Let's say obvious credentials to uh, be a part of something like this. So. Yeah, it was it was intimidating in some levels. It was humbling in some levels, and it was just a great experience. And you know, from the beginning, I set out. I was like, this is not about going to lap a race car and set new, uh, you know, set new records or anything like this. This was very much the opposite of uh, what Koenigsegg was trying to do. I the purpose for me was to understand the car and to write as good and as honest of an article that I could. And that was the attitude. I went into this and I think it, I think it suited me. I think that benefited me to have that attitude to not let the red mist flow and let your brain make stupid mistakes. Yeah. Although I think in a way the, the two things are kind of similar because in both, in both regards, it's kind of a PR stunt, right? Or a PR happening. And it's not just about, you know, if, if Nick had gotten behind the wheel of the Koenigsegg and, you know, did some crazy burnout just because, hey, this will be cool. But then, you know, had caused, you know, gone off the road and messed up a tire or anything, you know, like 
if that had gone gone sideways. But also part of the part of the whole point of this is to take something that you know normal people are not going to experience either of these things, right? Driving a you know driving a car super super fast, or even owning a Koenigsegg, or even getting into one is such a rare thing. And in your case, uh, you know, like just getting into this race car, let alone driving it around a track and you know actually uh, you know pushing and you know pushing it and having some fun with it. So uh, you know the challenge is sort of communicating with the world at large about something that is really exclusive and is really special. So it's uh, it's a you know cool combination of your talents to be able to not only just you know fly there and drive a car uh, and uh, and enjoy the day of doing so and, and do so competently and uh, you know as well as only a handful of people in the world can do, but to uh, to then also communicate that to the world at large to be able to say here's what that's here's what's interesting about that and uh, you know here's here's why you why you should care and and so on. So I think I think it's really cool to. Uh, that you get to, to be a part of these things and, um, you know, to be able to share that and, uh, whether that, you know, how much that ties in with your fun with cars stuff and your, you know, have your day job and have the, when these things, uh, coexist together in a, in a fun way, I think it's, uh, it comes together well. Well, I can only thank you for saying so. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, uh, Mercedes and or other companies, feel free to call me up again. Uh, <laughs> we can write all kinds of great articles this way. Um, this, podcast was started as a formula one podcast in fact its original name was formula one etc the f1 show formula what did happen this season it would it would behoove us to at least give formula one a shout out here you were not on the podcast all year jim i wasn't but you i think did watch some formula one races just give us give us a little taste give us a minute of that good old Jim Lau discussing Formula One. All right. Well, I did watch every single race. Um, I do, uh, you know, I do keep up with it and, uh, and and follow it. And I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I still enjoy every race for whatever it brings. You know, I know some of them are more exciting and there's more overtakes and there's, you know, different strategies and whatever. Um, but uh, similar to, to you and what, you know, Chris Roche has talked about and so on um, is just kind of the technology of it and seeing, okay, how all these different teams with all these different people from all over the world have come together and they've built all these different cars and yet they can all be within a few tenths of a second of each other uh, when they're actually trying to go be driven around the track by different people from all the different backgrounds. Like, it's just really interesting to see how that's all come together and different novel solutions to problems and all that. So I'm not going to be one of these people that says, oh, I'm turning off Formula One for the rest of the season because my guy won or my guy lost or whatever. So uh, I thought it was cool to see Lewis Hamilton uh, win the championship. That seemed pretty obvious um, after kind of the the middle of the year, you know, uh, where... Um, you know, he started just really doing well and, uh, and Vettel, you know, didn't and a bunch of uh, problems for Ferrari. Um, uh, I guess, I don't know. The, uh, the, the other question is like, is, is Botas actually any good or was it just all, all about the car and whatever? I mean, it was cool to see him end the year strongly. And, uh, I don't see him challenging Lewis for the, you know, for the championship next year at all. It, it just doesn't seem like it would go that way for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, I, I am, I'm keen to see what Red Bull does next year. Um, if they, you know, the, all the, there's already these little articles and talk in the off season. Of, oh, you know, based on switching to our car, you know, we're switching to next year's car early, and so next year's car is already really far along, and it's going to be amazing. And you know, I, I, I'm really curious what the Toro Rosso Honda will be like. Um, you know, I'm doubting that Honda can magically turn a corner and all of a sudden be amazing, but one never knows. Um, but uh, how fast will the McLaren Renault be? I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting stories from that same kind of technological angle and from the whole racing lap as a sum of so many different parts of the drivers and all the engineers and the technicians and the whole, um, you know, all, all the, uh, just everything that goes into that. So I think it'd be really interesting to see where everything shakes up. Ultimately though, will it still just be the Mercedes show at the top and the Lewis Hamilton managing a lead over the rest of the field in a race and managing a championship lead over the rest of the field for a season? Uh, you know, maybe. Um, and, and if so, I guess that is what it is. That's just what we're dealing with right now. Um, it is interesting to me to see, you know, the Liberty Media, the changes, the, the few changes we've had so far, but, um, you know, more and more as time goes on. Um, and something that I think you guys touched on a little bit, but uh, to, to expand upon a little bit, the, the coverage here in the U.S., that I think could be a pretty big difference. Um, as as you know, you know, we're done with NBC Sports. It's going to be all on ESPN now. ESPN, of course, did have a, a you know, a long history with Formula One, not about long, but a history with Formula One back in the day. I think that's where like Bob Varsha was originally uh, kind of got his bona fides as, a, as an F1 reporter was when he worked for ESPN and uh, traveling around the world and, and doing all that. So we don't yet know anything about 
what that coverage is going to be, um, who's going to be involved with it, how much of it is going to be personalized to the U.S. compared to, you know, brought over from international feeds and all that. But the fact that there is a whole new deal in place and ESPN is probably going to want to dazzle us with how good they are and they must have some deal in place with Liberty Media being an American company. You'd think they're going to do pretty well. Um, but also these these rumors about uh, FY launching their own streaming service are really interesting to me as someone who has finally done a cable cord cutter and uh, getting all my stuff through the Internet. So, you know, I'm still I'm always going to follow Formula One, I think, to some extent and still very interested to see just kind of how things how things are evolving with new ownership and all that. There's a lot of doom and gloom articles and podcasts and various things about, oh, this is terrible and I'm never going to watch this because this reason or that reason. And some of that's, you know, the sound of the cars or the stupid driver introductions or I want them to do more of these driver introductions or I think you know, this is cheesy or there should be, you know, whatever. Um, right now, I think the controversy is about grid girls and now uh, there's going to be grid girls and they're not or grid boys or what's all going to happen. So, um in my view, those things kind of come and go, and I'm not super bothered about uh, the particulars of that nearly so much as um, as long as there's still development and interesting engineering and, you know, interesting stories to be told uh, between drivers and teams and engineers and so on that um, I think there's, you know, Formula One's always going to have a place in my heart and in my entertainment schedule and uh, occasionally, very occasionally, in this case, my uh, my podcasting life. Uh, don't you feel better? I feel better, guys. I know that much. Uh, Jim, that was amazing. And please, please, everyone, uh, accept my thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get your podcast. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. Wow, you really read out the URL with the underscores and everything, don't you? Oh, yeah. And check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash fwcars. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, that, and, and yeah, that was more than 40 minutes, too. <laughs> was it ever going to be 40 minutes?